Welcome to our podcast, Revelation Conversations. I'm Steve Goebel, and I'm here again with Kyle Hatfield, one of the members of our teaching team who works in Christian publishing and is a teacher in our School of Bible and Ministry. Kyle, thanks for being here again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to start by giving you, our listeners, our purpose behind doing this. We're hoping to utilize this time to unpack more in the book of Revelation and to supplement the Sunday teachings as our church, Ecclesia Eugene, goes through Revelation. Revelation can be very overwhelming for people, so we're hoping to bring more clarity. And each week, we're releasing this podcast at 4 p.m., and you can find it through our website, EcclesiaEugene.org. Now, Kyle, last week was tough. It was a beast. <laughs> to try and unpack, but today I'm feeling pretty confident. It's pretty straightforward for us. And what we're talking about today is we're gonna be talking about the major viewpoints and what those are in relation to the end times. I'm gonna have Kyle break down for us today premillennialism, uh, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. This is actually a part one of a two-part series. Next week, we're going to talk about the strengths and weaknesses in each of these positions. So, first question, why are there multiple viewpoints in regards to the end times? Isn't the Bible supposed to be clear about what we're supposed to believe? I think that's a natural question that many people wrestle with, especially as they've started to read the book of Revelation. And the response to that is the Bible is clear on the essentials, and all three of the main viewpoints we're going to be talking about today agree on these essentials. What are those? That Christ will return, the resurrection of the body, a future judgment, and eternity in a new restored creation. The different viewpoints all agree on the essentials, and so they've been understood as the orthodox viewpoints throughout Christian history. These are the things that the historic creeds and catechisms focus on, and none of them actually endorse a specific millennial view. Where these different viewpoints differ is on the details, particularly in these points. The nature of the millennium mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, which is where these viewpoints get their names, when Christ returns in relation to the millennium, how many resurrections there will be, and about the nature of the nation of Israel. This is actually a really big one. And what we also see is the point of this discussion isn't a discussion about who's heretical and who's not, who trusts scripture and who doesn't. That's really important for us to uh, no. While this is an important debate and a debate that uh, we hear about and we know many people debate uh, frequently about, this <laughs> is still a family discussion uh, amongst fellow believers. For each of the three viewpoints, you can find faithful Christians, brilliant theologians, and passionate pastors who have held to them throughout history and who hold them today. These details have been something that the church has debated for, for 2,000 years. And even within these main viewpoints, there's different flavors and permutations of these viewpoints that, that are debated within their own team. 
And so there's really no consensus within Orthodox Christianity. And so we, as followers of Jesus, we must be careful and we must be humble Mm. if we think or when we think we have the correct view. Many, 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 many men and women far smarter than us uh, have held to different ideas. And there are many in our specific church who have differing views on these positions. In fact, it's interesting as we've gone through this book on Sundays, I've met people at our church that hold to all three of those positions. And and one more thing uh, before we get started. For most of church history, a lot of these terms describing the viewpoints, they didn't even exist. And many didn't see themselves as a part of any camp. Things were much more fluid in those days, less structurally defined. And that's a good thing for us to remember because we're in this day and age where we've fallen in love with labels and attaching ourselves to specific labels or teams. And what we can find in the book of Revelation is that can actually cause us to drift from focusing on what's most important, focusing on the essentials. And if we're not careful, then we can actually start to become so invested in seeing our team win and rooting for our team uh, for what we believe to be true, that we uh, start to um, negate or not allow Christ uh, to do what he wants to do in us as followers focused on him. Mm. Now, with with all that said, uh, Kyle, we have people listening who come from a variety of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Some have grown up in the church and have heard these terms and have studied Revelation. And then we have others who literally know nothing. This series has been the first time they've opened the book of Revelation and they're diving into this book for the first time. And for people, regardless of where they land, I think this is always important. This has to be that starting point is When you're going to break down the positions, you have to first have an understanding of what the millennium is. Where does it come from? And how does it form the basis for these different positions? So, Kyle, why don't you just answer that for us today? Yeah, so like you said, the main point of discussion here is about the millennium. So Mm -hmm. uh, we got to look back and see what does Revelation actually say about the millennium? And so first we want to look at Revelation 19, actually, where it talks about Jesus returning on a white horse to make war against the devil, the beast, and and those who are in opposition to him. This is the big second coming image that we see of Jesus. And then in Revelation 20, we read about Satan being thrown into a pit, and it says, bound for a thousand years years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So that's where we get the term millennium for. Mm -hmm. It's for this thousand year period here. And then John says he saw in chapter 20, verse four thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I, that's John, saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so that's Mm. why we also think of it as a millennial kingdom, because it's not just this thousand year period, but it is a period where Christ is reigning as king 
and his believers are reigning with him. And then after the thousand years, verse 7 says, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So at the end of that, evil is defeated once and for all. And then John ends chapter 20 describing the resurrection of the living, and then he uh, describes their judgment. And so that's the main passage of discussion here. But of course, these viewpoints are also considering the entirety of Scripture, and their views of the millennium have wide implications on how they see the details of the last days played out. Yeah, I think it, it's an important uh it's an important conversation, and, and what makes even our understanding of, of this, just as you read that, what makes it challenging for a lot of us is, uh, it comes back to even last week when we were talking about the relationship between the Old Testament and mm-hmm. uh, and Revelation, and, and how uh, for us the challenge, and I was thinking about this as you were just reading about these images, is we're trying to interpret the imagery here. Um, when you even say a thousand years, we're trying to identify the numbers here. And, and for some of that, we're looking backwards uh, into the Old Testament, but we're, but we're asking, are, are these literal numbers? Are these figurative? Um, and, and so those are the questions that we see being wrestled with as we try to understand how these viewpoints were shaped, developed, and why people land on them. And so with that kind of general understanding of the millennium, how that came about, Kyle, break down for us these positions. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to discuss the the main viewpoints in the order that these views appear in history. So no one needs to worry that it's some secret order of preference or anything <laughs> like that. And I'm going to kind of split premillennialism apart into two different versions. There's historic premillennialism, and then there's dispensational or pre-tribulational premillennialism. And, and so I, I'm really going to discuss it in sort of four parts, but that, that third one, premillennialism, is split into two here. Uh, both historic premillennialism and amillennialism appear the earliest at, at about the same time in church history. So mm-hmm. they'll be discussed first, and then I'll just go in order from there. So uh, first, let's start with historic or classical premillennialism, and this was a viewpoint that emerged in some form sometime in the second century. That was really when we started to see these different views of the millennium coming out of the, the church at that time, because before that, in that first century, they, they were so focused on the church growing as this new religion and then thinking that Christ was going to come in any second. And so we get to the second century now. Now there's been uh, a few generations. And so now they're going, okay, what do we do here? He, he's got to be coming soon. And now what does that look like? You really see this growth of attention on the the millennium and trying to figure out what does Revelation 20 mean? And so it, it's yeah. almost like you look at when this started to become a thing and you go, man, it's, you wonder if they just were like, 
we missed it. What did exactly. we, and then it's like, yeah. what did we miss? You know, we thought he was coming and now it's been a little while. Where is he? And then it's like, okay, what does that say? What does that, what was John meaning? Totally, totally. You, As I kind of break these down, you'll see that a lot of these viewpoints are sort of products of their, their historical context. Now, that's not to mm-hmm. say that people were twisting scriptures, right. but it's, uh, we're all influenced by our context and, and how we read scripture. And so mm-hmm. you'll kind of see that as we go throughout these different viewpoints. So historic premillennialism, uh, second century, some notable people from the second century, Justin Martyr had a, a form of premillennialism. Um, maybe not exactly how I'll break it down here, but it was it was a form of it. And then Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon, and then uh, the Montanists were also premillennials in, in a certain form. Uh, they were, if you don't know, a, a charismatic group that had interesting beliefs about new revelation and definitely that Christ would return soon. Uh, they were soon dismissed as heretics, but not because of their premillennialism. So, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, throwing some shade there. Um, but that was uh, a very popular group at a certain point. So the big thing that marks the historic premillennial view is that they see Revelation 19 through 20 as sequential. And so those events that are listed in those two chapters mm-hmm. are listed in order uh, that they will happen. Right. And then that they are mostly literal events. Mm-hmm. And so that's how that's how they read those two chapters. So they believe the present church age will continue until a time of great tribulation and suffering comes. And, and we see that in the bulk of the book of Revelation. And then after that tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ will return. The second coming will happen. So that's Revelation 19. And for this reason, this viewpoint is sometimes in modern times called the post-trib view because it's after the tribulation, Jesus Mm -hmm. returns. Um, And then, so Jesus' second coming happens and it happens before the millennium, hence the name Mm pre-millennial. So it's before the millennium. And he sets up a literal kingdom where he will reign for a thousand years on earth. And then when Christ comes back, the believers who have died will be raised from the dead. This is the resurrection of the body. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirits. And these believers will reign with Christ on earth over the unbelievers for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the millennium, just like I was talking about earlier, Satan is unbound and rebels for one last gasp against Jesus. And then those who had died as unbelievers throughout human history, they will then be raised. So it's a second resurrection for them. Uh, well, for humans, the mm-hmm. first for them. <laughs> yeah. And then they'll be judged. It's a very straightforward reading of the visions of John described in those passages. Mm-hmm. Um, historic premillennialism, though, has, has for the most part faded from view in favor of pre-tribulational premillennialism, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but it plays a huge part in church history. And so that's why I wanted to start there. Okay, Kyle, now that we have the historic premillennialism view, what do we have after that in regards to history and the development of end time positions? Yeah, so we have what is called amillennialism. Amillennialism also emerged around the second century, but by the fourth century, it had become the dominant viewpoint of the church really until the 1500s, uh, where it starts to get a little bit more competition. And 
a lot of that was thanks in part to a theologian named Augustine. Mm-hmm. He, he was one of the most prominent amillennials in, in church history and really influenced how the church would think about the end times for a large chunk of church history. In many ways, what's kind of funny is the name amillennialism is a misnomer, though. It, the ah or the a in amillennial means no, as in no millennium. It was a name given to them. They didn't choose it. It was a pejorative <laughs> name given to them by premillennials. Um, but it's a misnomer because it implies they believe in no millennium at all. They actually do believe in the millennium. They just believe it to be figurative. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's semantics to you, but it's an important distinction to them. Uh, they see Revelation 19 through 20, not as sequential or literal, but as symbolic and figurative. So they're is no future literal thousand-year millennial kingdom. That's what they would say. The thousand years is simply a metaphor for a long period of time in which God's purposes will be accomplished. Uh, Revelation 20, they believe, is being fulfilled right now in the church age because Christ's kingdom has already come with his church. And they point to the fact that Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God often in present tense, like Matthew 10, 7 where he tells his disciples and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, not it'll come eventually. It is at hand. All millennials recognize that what is experienced right now is not the fullness of the kingdom. So they're, they're not deceived that there's no evil or anything like that. They know uh, there's evil. They know things are hard. And so they hold to what is known as the already not yet viewpoint of the kingdom of God. Uh, He is already reigning in heaven on his throne and in the church, but it is not yet fully consummated until he comes a second time. His current reign right now is a hidden one in the church, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, 2 says. And so therefore, Christians, we are citizens of a different kingdom, not the kingdom of man, not the Roman Empire or or any other country. We are citizens of a different kingdom. And then how they see the the different kind of elements of Revelation 20 specifically, they see the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 as having happened during Jesus's earthly ministry. So Mm -hmm. already happened where Jesus spoke of binding the strong man in Matthew 12, 29. If it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So he's talking about plundering Satan's house, yeah. plundering uh, with the souls of men. He's, he's, he's bringing them out from under Satan's rule into the kingdom of God. Uh, John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So he's saying Satan's binding is now, basically, is how they see that verse. Uh, Satan is still working but he's restrained. He's unsuccessful in his efforts to stamp out fully the church. So they see, uh, you know, the dragon passage we talked about last week, Revelation 12, where the dragon is trying to attack the woman uh, who is pictured as as the community of God. Satan's never able to actually kill the woman. He he does all these things. He sends a flood, all this stuff, and it never works. And, And that's another picture, they say, of how Satan is trying, but he he's unsuccessful because he is restrained. And then what do they say about when Revelation 20 says that uh, the dead saints came to life? How do they square that with already 
being in the millennial kingdom now? Well, they believe it's not referring to bodily resurrection, but they believe it's coming into heavenly existence in the presence of Christ. So those who die in Christ, they believe in Christ, are present with the Lord right now. Uh, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be away from the body is to be at home yep. with the Lord. And so th they say that is what is happening uh, or being referred to in Revelation 20 is that those who die are with Christ already. So to bring it all together now, uh, millennials they, they see Revelation 20 as describing a certain perspective of our current life. It can feel like tribulation at times, and there are moments of defeat, but if you just pull back the veil, like what Revelation literally means, you, you, mm -hmm. you uh, have that apocalypse, that unveiling, yeah. you pull back the veil just a bit and you can see the true reality, Satan is restrained and yeah. Christ is reigning. Yeah, and and so uh, from that point of view, when Christ comes back, it's it's immediately then to the new heaven and the new earth. Exactly. Yep. It's it's right away. Um, that's great. And we've got one. Well, we're going to describe also dispensational premillennialism, but uh, postmillennialism. Yes. What is that then? So very similar to amillennialism in some ways, they don't see Revelation 19 through 20 as sequential either. They mm -hmm. see it as a symbolically teaching different thematic theological truths for us to hold to. They both technically believe that Jesus will return, you know, after uh, whatever they believe about the millennium. Right. What distinguishes them from amillennials is not the timing of the second coming, but the nature of the millennium itself. So instead of a millennial kingdom that is more symbolic in nature, and that coincides with cycles of tribulation and opposition, like what amillennials believe. Postmillennials believe that the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church will just gradually increase. Things get better. Yeah, exactly. And so that a larger and larger proportion of the world's population will be Christians. They point to passages like Psalm 2.8, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And as a result, uh, they believe that there will be a significant Christian influence on society. Society will more and more function according to God's standards. And gradually, a millennial age of peace, prosperity, and righteousness will occur on earth. It, not necessarily a literal thousand years, but some sort of golden age. And then at the end of this golden age, Christ will return then. Mm. They use the parables of the gradual growth of the kingdom of heaven as evidence for this viewpoint. Like Jesus says in Matthew 13, 31 through 32, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. That's how they see what the, the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. And, and so like was stated earlier, the earliest viewpoints though were historic premillennialism and amillennialism uh, with amillennialism becoming the dominant viewpoint. Uh, and so that is around, uh, until around the 1500s with the rise of the Renaissance. Yeah, uh, It was a new era where civilization was emerging out of the dark ages and there were dramatic advances in science, the arts, and thought, and some scholars began to teach that 
through believers partnering with God in the Great Commission, the golden age symbolized by the millennial kingdom would be able to be ushered in. So they feel like they're already seeing the start of it with the Renaissance. And so they're thinking, all right, it's just going to keep going, basically. Yeah. The, tra- the trajectory is pointing up. And then even a few hundred years later, as the North American colonies were beginning to find their identities, preachers like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield encouraged their flocks to spread the faith and bring about the millennium. And there was a large focus on purity, purity in their life. That's where we get the Puritans from. We see also during this time, the amazing revival called the Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Winthrop, he called Puritan New England a shining city on a hill. They, they saw, okay, we are, we are living in the kingdom and we are bringing it now. Uh, many were so influenced by this viewpoint of the millennium that uh, some believed that the Revolutionary War uh, for American independence might help hasten Christ's return. Wow. So, um, there are, today, though, uh, there are some different manifestations for how postmillennialism presents itself. Uh, but one of the main things modern day postmillennials point to is how Christianity has constantly spread. Think about we we almost have the la- the Bible translated into every single language yeah. in the world. That that's just amazing. Poverty and starvation, while still present, it is becoming less common. Sicknesses are being cured. Uh, Civil rights are growing for marginalized people. Things aren't perfect again, but they are slowly getting better. Mm. And uh, so there's a deep optimism that post-millennials have and faith in the power of the gospel to transform not just lives, but society itself. That's great. That's great. I I think we can you know, uh, appreciate the perspective there of the gospel advancing, uh, which is the greatest good, it's the good news. And, and so that is a distinction that you see with that position that's, uh, that's important. Lastly, we have dispensational premillennialism. Yes. Break that down, Kyle. Yes, yeah, so uh, it it has uh, multiple names. So, like you said, dispensational premillennialism. Sometimes it's called pre-tribulational premillennialism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, basically, after the rise of amillennialism, uh, interest in the classic historic premillennialism, like I said, kind of faded away. Really, until the 1800s, and around this time, a man named John Darby. He w- he was a gifted. Plymouth Brethren teacher. He was a former priest from Ireland. He developed a new variety of premillennialism called dispensationalism. And dispensation is just a fancy word for era of time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Darby divided human history into different dispensations, different eras. And there's some debate amongst dispensationalists about what the correct division of eras is. Mm -hmm. But the most commonly understood amount of dispensations is, of course, seven. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the first would be the era of innocence. So this is like pre-fall. And then number two is conscience. So this is uh, where Adam and Eve are living. The society is growing now after the fall. And then the third is human government. We are seeing societies forming now, cities, nations, for promise. So this is where Abraham receives the covenant from the Lord, five law, so that is where Moses gets the law. He's forming the nation of Israel. And then six, grace, where the gospel comes in. And then seven, kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. That's the new heavens and the new earth 
forevermore. And so for the, the most part, dispensationalism sees things divided in, into those different eras. Uh, it, it's very similar to historic premillennialism in, in many ways, um, although uh, historic premillennialism didn't necessarily divide things into the dispensations. Um, but they both hold to a sequential and literal view of Revelation 19 through 20. Uh, but they do differ in two major things. Uh, the first one would be for dispensationalists. Uh, the, before the tribulation described in Revelation, they believe that Jesus will return in the clouds and believers both living at that time and those who are dead will be raptured. So caught up is the, the literal words there. And Jesus will take them up to heaven to be with him to avoid the tribulation, the, all those judgments, the, the three series of seven judgments that, we'll, mm-hmm. that we read about in Revelation. And uh, one of the main texts they get this from is Actually, not from Revelation. I know this is a Revelation podcast, but they get this from 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 18. For since we believe, uh, this is Paul writing, that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Greek term for caught up that Paul uses there is harpazo, which Mm -hmm. means snatched or seized, actually. Sometimes it's used as like a thief is taking something. Mm. And uh, the Latin translation of that term is rapturo, where we get the term rapture. And so the the other viewpoints see the harpazo that Paul is talking about here, the other viewpoints being amillennialism, postmillennialism, and then historic premillennialism. They see the harpazo of the saints as concurrent with the second coming of Christ. So this is part of the second coming. Uh, but dispensationalists recognize this as a separate event because it's happening before the tribulation, before the second coming, which comes after the tribulation. Right. Christians yes. will not go through those tribulations. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, and so when the rapture happens and the church is taken up, then it will usher in the great tribulation without the church there, where God will pour out his wrath on the unbelieving world and those who are left behind. Um, After the tribulation, so the seven years, Jesus will return fully with his saints and will rule with them for a literal thousand years before Satan's final defeat. So that sequential literal view again. So that's the the first thing that distinguishes them from historic premillennialism. And then the second thing is their view of Israel. So they have a, a strong belief that there is a distinction between the church and Israel mm-hmm. in the Bible and that the Old Testament prophecies about Israel, their land, their kingdom, their temple still must be li- literally fulfilled in the nation of Israel. And so the other viewpoints see those promises as being fulfilled in Jesus and the church, but dispensationalists would say, no, it's it's got to be Israel. Israel and the church are, are different. They're separate. And so they believe that during the time of the tribulation, while the church is gone in heaven, 
uh, that this is the time when there will be widespread conversion of the nation of Israel. So God's going to bring his people back to him. Specifically the nation of Israel. Exactly. Yep. That will be the focus. Yep. Um, for this to happen, though, you you need a nation of Israel to begin with, right? Right. <laughs> and Israel wasn't a nation at the time of John Darby, but this changed in 1948 when modern day Israel was established as a nation state. And so when that happened, this led to an explosion of popularity for dispensationalism in America specifically during the, the 1960s and the 1970s. And uh, that was also thanks to some very popular figures like Hal Lindsey with his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And then, of course, Chuck Smith with the Jesus Movement. And, and so they, they were able to spread that viewpoint even, even farther. In contrast to dispensationalism, like I was saying, the other uh, three viewpoints see Jesus as the one true Israel. And, and so because of faith in Jesus, they believe that the church, which includes Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, that the church becomes co-heirs to the promises and blessings given to Israel in the Old Testament. So that's where they differentiate. And so they would say, like Romans eleven seven, 7, where Paul says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. So that's how dispensationalists and the other viewpoints would differ. Um, there's also a variation of dispensational premillennialism <laughs> that believes Jesus will rapture his church not before the tribulation, but in the middle, before mm-hmm. it even gets worse, uh, and that's known as mid-trib. So, like you were saying earlier, there's variations and different right. flavors uh, within each of the viewpoints, um, but ultimately, dispensationalism is focused on a God who is sovereign and keeps his promises he is one who he doesn't leave his people out to dry. He uh, is is coming back for us, and and he wants to protect us and save us. Yeah, and you know, I I would just encourage our our listeners with this, especially if your head is just spinning uh, with information, and you're trying to remember what is what, <laughs> and and why is is why, and as you, as you wrestle with that one, you can listen to this again uh, and slow it down, pause it. Uh, where where you're looking for more clarity. But also, remember, this is a part one of part two. Next week, we're going to be actually looking at the pros and, and the cons or the strengths and weaknesses of each of these positions. So you're not going to want to miss that. And that'll also help not only form through your own opinions and thoughts, uh, but I think it'll also just give you um, a a much better understanding, which honestly is the goal. We're blessed when we understand, when mm. we study, and we take this book to heart. We read uh, in chapter one, and so that's important. So I want to encourage you to join us next week for that. But I also I just want to close with uh, this this reminder, and it's the reminder from Revelation chapter one verse one. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means this is about him, it's for him. And so if he gets lost in this, in in our thinking, uh, in the different things pulling at us in the book, then we're missing the point. Regardless of your position or lack of a position, Jesus has won victory and he's coming back. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we're to live victoriously with expectancy and urgency while patiently enduring. 
Thank you for joining us today and join us in person this Sunday at 8.30 or 10.30 or online at 10.30 as we continue walking through the book of Revelation. Revelation.